In times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared. Enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Sleepless tales commence, fellow travelers. I'm your guide, David Cummings. As you know by now, our camping trip in Goat Valley continues onwards, with danger and intrigue around every turn. I'm enjoying it so much, in fact, that I was considering booking a vacation there myself. I've had no leads for my 2022 break, and Goat Valley campgrounds seemed a perfectly safe, tranquil place. However, I got a pamphlet in my mailbox this week. It talks of a countryside paradise where gilded fields lead to rustic dwellings, where visitors can picnic beside a cerulean lake or investigate the subterranean cave system beneath the village. They can hike in the mountains that ring the entire area or explore the sun-dappled forest to the south. And to the east is an orchard that grows the most divine apples in the whole country, (laughs) so they say. It's a place called Gold Meadow, and I really want to visit. This year, they're opening the village to visitors for the first time ever. Now, that seems strange to me, so I did a little bit of googling, and it seems like the town of Gold Meadow suffered not one, but two mysterious tragedies. In the 1960s, almost the entire population of the town disappeared overnight. And in 2017... Well, I won't go into that right now. I need to read up on it some more so I don't spread false information. I should also probably check in on Joanna at the health clinic soon. She's been strangely quiet this week. Well, well. But now, on with this week's episode. In our first tale, we join a young woman named Carrie... Carrie's family has a bit of a unique quirk. They have their own banshee. Thanks to her grandmother, Carrie knows all about it. But in this tale, shared with us by author S.H. Cooper, Carrie's own encounter with this personal demon seems a little uncharacteristic. Performing this tale are Mary Murphy, Erica Sanderson, Kristen DiMercurio, and Atticus Jackson. So raise your head skywards and let off a scream. It'll be music to someone's ears. Just try to drown out the O'Sullivan song.
My family came over from the old country only a generation ago. Cran waddled off the boat in 1954, nine months along and ready to drop Dad the moment she set foot on American soil. She had the courtesy to wait until Granddad got her to their apartment in the Irish Quarter, at least. Despite being a modern couple in many ways, my grandparents brought some superstitions over with them, stuff having to do with fairies, rituals to ward off bad luck, that kind of thing. Because of them, I knew a lot of the folktales by heart, and could even say a few Irish Gaelic phrases, something Granddad was especially proud of. As I got older, their beliefs remained deeply rooted, even after they were unable to make the long journey back to Ireland. The reality that they'd never return home again hit Granddad hard, and he'd become moody and agitated. He had grown ill and frail in his later years. Gran cared for him night and day, helping him from his bed to his chair and back again once evening came. Despite being in her late seventies, she remained spry and sharp-witted. It must have pained her to watch Granddad's decline, but she hid it well. I still visited a few nights a week to help out as much as I was able, even if it was just keeping her company. One night, I overheard Gran whispering to Granddad as she tucked him in. She'll sure when it's time. He groaned softly in response. After she rejoined me in the living room, I asked her if she was expecting company. She'd smiled, a bit wistful, a bit sad, and patted my knee. Grandad isn't doing well, Carrie. I nodded stiffly. We were all aware that he was probably in his final days. He's just waiting to hear the song now. We both are, I suppose. Tears glistened in her eyes, and she wiped them quickly away. I had to force my next words past the sharp lump in my throat. What song? The Banshee song. She sings it for all the O'Sullivans when their time draws near. I frowned despite myself. I thought Banshee screamed or something. Some do. Some whale. It depends on the Banshee. There's more than one? Oh, hi. She regained her composure a bit as we moved away from the direct topic of Grandad's health. Almost all of the old families have one, and each one is different. The O'Sullivan Banshee is said to be a beautiful maiden with long silver hair, and her song is sad. Your great-gran believed she's one of the ancestors who died young and comes back to sing us to our final sleep. Grandad is worried she won't be able to find him so far from home. I told him that it doesn't matter where he is. She'll see him off, same as all the others before him. His fears, it turned out, were unfounded. Only a few days after our conversation, Grandad started asking Gran if she could hear it. He was smiling, unafraid, and Gran held his hand. He passed away the following night. She told me over the phone. She came. She let him know it was almost time, so I could be with him at the end. I didn't believe it, but it brought Gran comfort, and that was all that really mattered. Gran passed away seven years later. She'd moved to an assisted living community by then, and I was away at grad school. If she heard any kind of song in her last few days, she never said anything about it. We buried her alongside Grandad in a Catholic cemetery, took a few days to mourn, and then were forced to return to our normal routines as best we could. 
It was like Gran was fond of saying, Life doesn't stop just because death decided to visit. It was a rough time, but I graduated with my PhD, moved even further away from home to start my career, and eventually found my footing again. Well, I forgot a lot of the stories they told me, and the few Gaelic words I'd known faded with time. I'd like to think both of my grandparents still would have been proud of the woman I'd become. I was almost 30 and living alone for the first time in a city far from my family. My job counseling at-risk youths was high stress and required long hours and what was too often little sleep. I combated it with a lot of coffee and sugar. It left me feeling strung out, but oddly fulfilled. Such unhealthy habits have a way of catching up with you, however, and I crashed hard barely two months after I began. I only remember fragments of the dream I had the first time I finally got a full night's sleep. I was in my apartment, I think. Someone was with me. There was screaming. It was coming from somewhere far off. I woke up afraid, my heart pounding, and the last notes of a woman's cries still ringing in my head. I had to stop watching true crime shows while reviewing client files right before bed. I decided... Nightmares had never stuck with me long, and that one was no different, especially not when I had a handful of new clients waiting to see me. It was quickly forgotten amidst intake forms and initial meetings, at least until I sat down with Amy Belfry a few days later. She was 17, already with a police record, and teetering on the edge of returning to juvie. She'd come from a bad home, fell in with a worse crowd, and didn't seem very interested in escaping any of it. You'll be 18 in six months. Once you cross that line, there will be no going back. There are no safety nets for adults. We really need to start looking for ways to... I trailed off, and the purple-haired teen cocked an impatient eyebrow at me. I shook my head. Sorry, I thought I heard something. I started my speech over, but stopped again in short order. You didn't hear that? Hear what? It sounded like a scream. Welcome to the ghetto, Doc. I refocused on the matter at hand, but the scream stayed in the back of my mind. I'd barely been able to hear it, as if it had been coming from outside and down the street, but I couldn't shake that something had seemed familiar about it. Amy left my office with a packet of resources and instructions to return weekly, or more, if she felt like she needed the guidance. She rolled her eyes, and I heard the distinct sound of a weighty folder landing in the garbage bin outside my office. I sighed, but didn't get up. I was quickly learning that not everyone wanted my help. I was a bit surprised then, when she returned the following week for our scheduled appointment. Nothing better to do. We spent the hour talking. I'd ask her something. She'd answer and then ask me something. I'd reply with as much information as I was professionally and personally comfortable with. If I wanted her to trust me, I had to give her something to work with. Our second session definitely seemed to go better than the first. Little by little, Amy was warming up to me, and I felt it was only a matter of time before we would be working toward a better, legally sound future for her. That optimism stayed with me through the day and into the early evening when I was finally finished and heading down to the parking garage. It was quiet and mostly empty, not unusual for that time of day. 
I kept my keys held like claws between my fingers and hurried toward my car. My footsteps echoed off of the stone pillars around me. The only sound until the scream. It came from behind me, back by the elevator I'd just stepped off of. It was angry, and when I whirled around, I expected a woman to be charging full tilt at me. The garage was empty, however. I stood in place for a moment. This clenched so tightly around my keys that they dug into my flesh. I took a step back, trying to even out my quick, frightened breathing. Suddenly, the screaming seemed to come from everywhere. Loud, piercing, furious. I yelped and scrambled the rest of the way to my car. I barely let the door close behind me before I was screeching out of my spot and racing toward the attendance booth. At the sound of my tires skidding around the corner, the security guard inside the booth poked his head out of the window. Concern was stamped across his features. You okay, Dr. O'Sullivan? I think someone was following me. You didn't hear that? I kept looking over my shoulder, but there was never anyone in pursuit. His brow wrinkled. Hear what? The screaming! He shook his head, befuddled. I barely slept at all that night. I close my eyes and hear the screaming all over again. It was so hateful. Almost a roar. It would have been impossible for the guard to have missed it in the otherwise silent garage. Unless he'd had earbuds in or his radio turned up loudly, the logical little voice in my head said. There was a high population of homeless people living around the building I worked in. It was possible I'd just disturbed one who was sleeping under the nearby stairwell, and their response had been to yell at me until I left. Wouldn't I have seen them, though? Amy surprised me by coming in again that Friday. She said she just needed someone to talk to. I was only all too happy to let her unload, and we worked on forming a plan of action to help her improve her situation. As she got up to go, she paused and smiled at me. The first genuine smile I'd ever gotten from her. Thanks, Doc. It was one of the best rewards I'd ever gotten. I was still floating a bit when I closed up my office at night and started down the hall for the elevator. I pressed the button and stepped back to wait, while it made its slow climb four stories up from the parking garage. The hallway was dark, lit only by some emergency lights and the glow from the receptionist computer, which he had a bad habit of leaving on. It could be a bit eerie, standing in my work's lobby after hours like that. So when I heard the faintest sound of someone singing from down the hall behind me, I thought it my imagination. Still, I pressed the elevator call button a few more times. The sound persisted. I tightened my grip on my purse and my keys and looked around. It was a female voice, so soft and low that I had to strain my ears to listen. It was singing in a language that was both strange and familiar. Memories I thought long gone stirred. Gaelic. She was singing in Gaelic. I half turned. The dark outline of a woman was standing at the far end of the hall, just outside my office door. She was featureless in the shadows. The emergency light was only strong enough to illuminate the top of her head, casting a dim red glow across silver hair. Her song faded as I looked at her. The screeching keen that followed seemed to shake the entire office. My purse tumbled from my arms as I forced myself to run. I shoved open the door to the stairwell and leapt down the steps two at a time, screaming for help. Behind me, 
The door clattered against the wall as it was pushed open for a second time. That awful high-pitched scream reverberated down the stairs after me. As I flew past the door leading to the third floor, a pale face, unnaturally elongated into an enraged snarl, pressed against the glass. I couldn't tell if she was young or old, ugly or beautiful. All I could focus on was her dark, flickering eyes, half-veiled by silver hair and the scream. If someone had taken a chisel and hammered it into my eardrum, I doubt it would have hurt more than that scream. It sank like needles into my head until I was clawing at my face, trying to make it stop. I stumbled down the remaining flights, always aware of the woman following me, unable to escape her wild keen. I burst into the parking garage, but instead of going to my car, I ran immediately toward the security guard at the gate. I'm not sure who was screaming louder at that point, me or the silver-haired woman. The guard was already out of the booth and coming toward me by the time I rounded the corner. He caught me and helped me back to the safety of the booth, where he locked both of us in and called the police. I think I'm being stalked, I told the responding officer. In his statement, the security guard said he only ever heard me screaming. There was no second woman. Still, I begged for an escort home so that I could get some of my things and go stay at a hotel until I could get a flight out to my family. I rode in the front seat of a police cruiser to my apartment building. As soon as I opened the car door, I heard the singing. Slow, sad, in a language that was both strange and familiar. Gran's voice whispered from the back of my mind. The Banshee song. I hesitated, perched on the edge of my seat, as realization crept across my shoulders and down my back. The O'Sullivan song. The reason only I could hear the screaming... It wasn't a person that was chasing me. But Cran said that the O'Sullivan Banshee didn't scream or wail. She sang to warn someone of their impending doom. Why, then, had she been screaming at me? She only sang when I was heading towards home. I tilted my head back to gaze up the front of my apartment building to where my window would be. Her fury hadn't been directed at me. She had been trying to tell me something... I didn't know why or how. I'd never heard of a banshee being a protective spirit. The singing had stopped. The officer turned to me from the driver's seat. Are you okay? I almost didn't answer him. It was crazy. It was unbelievable. It made no sense. But I was certain all the same. I think that someone's in my apartment. Amy Belfry and two male accomplices were arrested when police searched my apartment moments later. They'd broken in and were waiting in the dark to ambush and rob me. The men were armed with duct tape and knives. Amy was carrying a taser. She'd assumed because I had doctor in front of my name that I'd have money and had followed me home after one of her appointments. I'd never suspected a thing. I have not seen or heard from the silver-haired woman since that night. I know that I will one day, and that she'll sing the O'Sullivan song for me, just as she did for my grandparents before me. But when we meet again, I will not be afraid of the Banshee.
temp work can be an absolute bore. You're simply there to earn a paycheck. It's not what you intend to do as a career. It's a necessity. So it's fair if you don't put a proper amount of effort in, <laughs> right? But in this tale, shared with us by author Jen Mirish, we're reminded that carelessly half-assing things can have dire consequences. Performing this tale are Mick Wingert, Nicole Goodnight, Nicole Doolin, Aaron Lillis, Matthew Bradford, Wafia White, and Mike Delgadio. So try to be mindful of others. It matters more than you think. Besides, work's nearly over. And it might not be the first, but you've got to get on it to get home. It's the last train. A baby's unhappy shriek erupted from one of the exam rooms down the hall, stabbing an icicle through Kenna's aching head. Squeezing her eyes shut, Kenna cursed the temp agency for sending her on this job. Her workspace was a tiny table in a back office, sandwiched between the copy machine and the file cabinet. Its only advantage was its location, far from the waiting room filled with snot-nosed, germy children. The gig sucked, but it paid the bills. For now. The jangling of the telephone knifed into her forehead. Opening one eye, Kenna squinted at the wall clock. Ten more minutes until she could escape and run down the block to CVS for headache medicine. She picked up the receiver. Good morning, downtown pediatrics. Yes, I can schedule that for you. Are you an existing patient? Kenna's stomach growled like an irate bear. She wondered if the caller could hear it. I don't see any weekend appointments until July. We can do the 7th at 9 a.m. Any change in insurance? Okay, Miss Williams, you're all set. She clicked to submit the appointment. The clock read 11.55. Please, phone, stay quiet for five more minutes. The ringing seized her brain and shook it, like a child with a snow globe. Kenna rubbed her temples and picked up the phone. Downtown Pediatrics. Hi, my name is Shauna Middleton. The voice was worn out, raspy, as if its owner had recently been shouting. May I help you? I understand you have a colic specialist on staff. Dr. Millar? Sorry, ma'am. Dr. Miller is no longer with the practice. He retired May 1st. The caller was silent for a minute. Is there another doctor with the specialty? Her voice caught followed by an unmistakable sniffle. Kenna shifted in her chair, itchy with embarrassment for this woman. No, ma'am. I'm sorry for getting upset. It's just that I haven't slept in several weeks now. Jacob's two months old. He never stops crying. Can I speak with one of the doctors? Kenna checked the schedule. Dr. Nasser is out today. The other physicians are with patients, and the nurses are in clinic. I can transfer you to voicemail. No. Kenna flinched. No. Please don't transfer me. I just don't know what else to do. I've called everywhere. I've tried everything. I'm all by myself. My husband's out of town, and... The voice trailed off, replaced by the sound of a baby fussing. Is there anyone else you could refer me to? I don't care how far it is. 
I'm in Devonshire, but I'll drive out of state if I have to. Kenna pictured Devonshire, the suburb where she'd worked as a server at bar mitzvahs and quinceañeras to pay her college tuition. She remembered the slim people in gowns and tuxes who'd lifted champagne flutes from Kenna's tray with manicured fingers and looked right through her. I don't know what to tell you, ma'am. In the background of the call, the baby started howling. Kenna held the receiver away from her ear. The caller was crying again. Please. Please help me. I can't handle it. I'm afraid of what I might do. Ma'am? Please. Sorry, I can't help you. Is there anyone? I can't help you. She replaced the receiver on its cradle more forcefully than she'd intended. The bang struck her pounding head like a mallet on a gong. Kenna? She jumped. Her boss, Deborah, stood in the doorway, arms folded. Her workspace might be far from the waiting room, but it was right next to Deborah's office. Yes? Got a minute? Uh... Kenna glanced at the wall clock. Come and see me when you get back from lunch. Deborah held Kenna's gaze, then disappeared back to her office. Swallowing, Kenna grabbed her purse and hustled out the door. The street was noisier than the office, but its sounds comforted Kenna as she stepped onto the sidewalk, joining the river of anonymous pedestrians. The car's engines, the chattering strangers, even the bus's squeaking brakes soothed her brain like a bath. She extended a leg and kicked a pigeon off the curb, chuckling at its affronted warble. Inside the store, Kenna hummed along to the piped-in pop music, selecting a bottle of ibuprofen from the shelf. On her way to the cash registers, she nearly tripped over a stroller parked in the aisle. Muttering curses under her breath, she grabbed a package of Super C. Might as well protect herself against those little plague rats. And then I had to listen to Deborah give me a big speech about empathy. What the hell? It's not my fault Dr. Miller retired. Kenna's phone was pressed to her ear as she strode home from the subway. Something was pinching her heels. She looked down and sighed. She'd forgotten to swap her pumps for sneakers before she left work. Ah, dude, that sucks. What did the lady say again? The one who called? She said her baby cried a lot. Like, duh, babies cry a lot. Kenna perched on the end of a planter and kicked off a shoe. She clearly hasn't slept in a while. She's crying as much as the baby was. Probably colic. Kenna blinked. How did you know that? Tyler was an expert on cannabis varieties, Xbox, and rock climbing equipment, but to her knowledge, not babies. That sounds like Ashley right after she had Emma. She, like, never slept. Your mom went over there every day to watch the baby just so Ash could take a nap for a few hours. Kenna pulled on her sneakers and stuffed the pumps into her bag. I don't get it. So you lose some sleep? What's the big deal? I slept like four hours a night during finals. Yeah, but not for months on end. That shit is intense. I've never seen Ash like that. She looked like hell and she cried all the time. I was kind of worried about her for a while there. Kenna strode down the sidewalk. Ugh, I am so never having kids. Usually Tyler would have chimed in with something like, yeah, seriously. Today, he said nothing. Kenna felt a rush of irritation. So what should I have done with her, genius, if you're so smart? Yeah, I don't know. Give her to Deborah, I guess. 
she's the boss, let her deal with it. Fine. Well, tomorrow you can go in instead of me since you know so goddamn much. Hey, don't take it like that. I'm just... Mansplaining, maybe? Kenna stepped off the curb. A taxi blared its horn as it turned the corner, inches from her feet. She quickly hopped backward. Wait, what? How am I mansplaining? I'm just telling you about my sister. I'm just saying colic is a real thing. Call me crazy, but I would have thought my own boyfriend would be supportive instead of criticizing me. Kenna. She ended the call and stuffed the phone into her pocket. A minute went by, then another. She waited for it to ring. Tyler always called back. The phone remained silent. Kenna turned down an alley to take a shortcut to her apartment. Condensation dripping from window air conditioners plopped against the pavement as she dodged litter. At first, the footsteps were so quiet that she barely noticed them. High heels clicked against the concrete, staccato taps reverberating off the brick walls. Kenna ignored them. If it had been a man's footsteps, she might have picked up the pace. Or at least taken a look. But there was nothing to fear from a woman. Emerging, finally, onto her street, Kenna glanced back. Except for a dumpster and a scuttling rat, the alley was empty. A baby was crying, drawing deep breaths and belting out its misery. The sound grew louder and louder until it blotted out everything, like an ambulance siren passing you on the street, blaring straight into your brain. Kenna woke with a gasp fumbling for her phone, swiping to kill the chirping alarm. Squinting at the sunlight, she shoved aside the bedspread and stumbled toward the bathroom, where her roommate, Renata, hair wrapped in a towel, was just leaving. In the kitchen, Kenna flopped into a chair with her coffee mug and breakfast hot pocket. Across the table, Renata set down her cereal spoon and glanced away from the TV news. Dang, girl, you look as tired as I feel. Did someone with kids move into our building? Not that I know of. Why? I couldn't sleep last night. Some baby kept crying. Kenna gulped her coffee and cringed as it burned her tongue. You didn't hear it? Earrings swished as Renata shook her head. Nope. Lucky. It was all friggin' night long. Kenna glanced at her phone and frowned. Still no call or text from Tyler. Renata stood up and carried her bowl to the sink. You've been working at that pediatrician's too long. Babies on the brain. (laughs) Ugh, shut up. I do not have babies on the brain. Well, maybe in my mom's wildest dreams. Well, anyway, see you tonight for Margarita Fridays. She closed the dishwasher and flounced out of the room. Later. Kenna took a bite of her sandwich. Her eyes drifted to the countertop TV which Renata had left on. On screen was a photo of a smiling white woman, taken from social media by the look of it. The newscaster's voice struck a somber tone. Tragic news this morning from Devonshire. 31-year-old mother Shauna Middleton was found dead yesterday evening in an apparent suicide, just a few yards away from her infant son. The images changed, showing a tiny pink-faced baby. A sticker on his onesie read, Two months. Police responded to a 911 call placed from the Middleton's home. The responding officers found a baby left alone in the living room in a portable crib. They discovered the victim's body in a bathroom on an upper floor of the residence. 
Kenna dropped her breakfast and stared. Middleton was on maternity leave from her job as an executive at Morse Investments. She had no criminal record and no known history of mental illness. The family had recently relocated to the area following a job transfer. Middleton's husband, reached by phone this morning, requested that the media respect the family's privacy during this terrible time. No way. No fucking way. Shauna Middleton's blue eyes gazed confidently at the camera. Her brown hair was long and straight, like a Barbie doll's. She looked like someone with advantages, someone who'd had every reason to think things would always go her way. Kenna jabbed the power button on the remote and the screen went dark. She poured the coffee down her throat and pushed the rest of the hot pocket into the garbage disposal. Gathering up her bag and purse, she thought she could hear it still. A baby's woeful wails, bouncing between the tall buildings all the way up to the sky. Kenna, a word? Sighing, Kenna forwarded the phone to the front desk and trudged into Deborah's office, sitting on the plastic chair facing the desk. Down the hall, a toddler bawled. Deborah folded her hands and leaned forward. I couldn't help but hear. That's the third caller you snapped at this morning. Kenna avoided Deborah's brown eyes. Sorry. And reception told me they asked you for more HIPAA forms two hours ago. Kenna shifted awkwardly, bracing herself for Deborah's next words, which would certainly announce that she was fired. Is everything okay? The gentle tone of voice made Kenna look up in surprise. Um, I had a rough night last night. I didn't sleep much. Aren't you feeling well? Not really. For a split second, Kenna contemplated telling Deborah about the caller about the news broadcast that had replayed in her head all morning. Just as quickly, she tossed that idea. She was already in enough trouble. You're free to go home if you're not well. The concern in Deborah's eyes brought pinprick tears to Kenna's. She thought about the short paycheck that would result from an afternoon off. Her student loans weren't going to pay themselves. No, I'm good. I'll, I'll try to do better. Are you sure? Everyone has rough days, Kenna, but being rude to customers is not acceptable. I understand. All right. We'll give it one last shot. Kenna stared at her folded hands. Go on back now. She got up and scurried back to her table. The afternoon dragged. Kenna felt like a piece of taffy stretched thin and liable to break. She chugged office coffee from a paper cup. Calls slowed. The copy machine clacked and whirred as she ran off more forms. As she stood waiting, lulled by the drone of the machinery, the newscaster's words returned unbidden. Shauna Middleton, body found in a bathroom. She wondered how they'd determined that it was a suicide. She would not Google the story. She would not. If Deborah caught her on the phone, that would be the end of it. Kenna walked to the front desk and deposited the still-warm papers in the appropriate trays. Hefting a stack of patient files from the day's appointments, she made her way to the file room. The shelves spanned the height of the room, floor to ceiling. In the back, next to the Fs, Kenna set the file folders onto a stool and peeked through the shelves. Sliding her phone from her pocket, she opened a web browser and typed. The dead woman's husband had been away on business, she read. The couple had no family in the area. 
A neighbor said they heard the baby crying sometimes and were shocked that something like this could happen to such a nice young couple. According to investigators, the cause of death was electrocution. The young mother had swaddled her baby son in his crib, stepped into the tub she'd filled, switched on a hairdryer, and dropped it in. Kenna ran down the hall to the restroom. Breathing hard, she splashed cold water on her face and looked into the mirror. Her eyes, blue like the dead woman's, looked sunken, surrounded by shadows. A woman had done a horrible thing, and Kenna was possibly the last person who had spoken to her while she was alive. Kenna forced herself to walk back to the file room. She concentrated on placing the folders in alphabetical order, telling herself not to picture an upstairs bathroom in an elegant house, willing herself not to imagine whether there had been blood. When five o'clock finally came, Kenna burst through the door like a tiger from a cage. The air was thick, threatening rain, but she gulped in greedy breaths as she started walking. Overhead, power lines buzzed with static in the moist air. Near the subway entrance, the gray man paced in his usual place, his sneakers shuffling along the pavement. His hand-lettered sign bore a single word, repent. Slowly, he looked up at Kenna, extended an arm, and pointed at her face. She hurried past him and down the subterranean steps. Kenna? Kenna was hanging her damp coat in the closet. You're coming out with us, right? You look like you could use a drink. Before she could answer, the door buzzer sounded, and Renata jumped up from the couch to answer it. A few seconds later, their friends Henry, Paul, and Marie strolled in through the apartment door. Kenna's bleary eyes watched her friends, laughing and bantering back and forth. They were so relaxed, so carefree, so normal. La Ciudad Mexican Restaurant made their margaritas strong, she knew. One or two of those should take the edge off. They piled into the subway, exited at Weiler Street, assembled around La Ciudad's corner table, and ordered every appetizer on the menu. Kenna reached for the salt-rimmed glass and drank, the green liquid flowing down like sweet fire. Mariachi music blasted from the speakers. Several more of their friends showed up and joined the party. Kenna was glad for the big group, glad it was Friday, glad they were so loud they wouldn't notice if she was quiet. Across the room, a waitress with long, dark hair turned around and looked at Kenna. She had Shauna Middleton's face. Kenna gasped, blinked, and looked again. The waitress was just one of the Friday regulars, stuffing signed receipts into her apron as she carried a tray full of empty glasses. Absurdly, Kenna thought about proposing a toast to Shauna, having a drink for her to remember her life. The concept was so ridiculous and terrible that she started giggling hysterically, mirthlessly, unstoppably. No more for you. Their laughter roared in Kenna's ears. Later, they all careened down the sidewalk on their way to some bar where some friend's band was playing. Kenna's mind wobbled, a boat adrift on an alcoholic sea. It was raining again, but Renata was singing as she threw an arm around Kenna's shoulder and another around Marie's. A car splashed past, its horn a shrill whine that trailed off into the darkness. In the crowded, smoke-filled bar, Kenna's stomach roiled 
the tequila threatening to erupt. She clutched her abdomen and put out a hand to lean against the bar. Hey, you okay? You don't look so good. I think I'm gonna head home. Want me to come with you? Kenna looked up. Renata was standing next to Henry. His head was turned away, talking to other friends, but his arm was around Renata's shoulder. That was new. No, I'm good. Take an Uber, okay? Be safe. Renata turned to Henry, sliding an arm around his waist. The Uber app refused to load, displaying a vague message about an unavailable server. Kenna wiped raindrops off the phone and tried hailing a taxi, but they all sped by with passengers in the back seat. She gave up and turned back toward the subway. If she hurried, she could still make the last train. Kenna gripped the rails as she lurched down the ramp stairs to the platform. She skidded a little, then flopped down on a bench, slapping the sides of her face as if sobriety could be applied like lotion. She looked down the length of the platform, a flat plane bisecting a tube-shaped cave. She was alone, and yet it seemed that Shauna Middleton was there too. Kenna imagined Shauna sitting on the bench next to her, wearing a business suit and heels, both of them facing forward like two commuters waiting for the same train. Suddenly, a baby's mournful wail filled the station, echoing off the soggy walls. Kenna leaped to her feet and looked around. The dim platform was empty. The stairs leading up the street were vacant, littered with soggy shreds of garbage. Get the grip. Her breath came in ragged gasps. There's no baby here, Kenna. No baby. The baby's cry grew louder by degrees, as if someone were pushing a baby stroller in her direction. Heart slamming against her chest, Kenna stumbled backward, tripping over the bench. Her arms flailed and her phone went flying, bouncing against the floor and skittering toward the track. She dived for it, landing on the damp cement and sliding too fast. She swiveled her body to try to stop, but her legs went over the edge. Somehow, her arms locked against the yellow painted rim of the platform. And then her elbows were the only thing holding her up, keeping her from sliding into the shadows that concealed the third rail. In terror, she kicked at the tunnel wall, but succeeded only in making her body slide a few more inches toward the track. A flicker of movement appeared at the stairs. Kenna squinted. It appeared to be a homeless woman, long, raggedy hair and stained clothes, walking slowly toward her. Help me! Please! I'm slipping! I, I can't hold on! Her arms trembled alarmingly. The baby was still crying. The shrieks reverberated off the tunnel walls, swallowing up the narrow space all the way to the tiny light in the distance, the headlamp of the approaching train. The woman moved closer, her head cocked to one side, studying Kenna. It looked like she had something bulky underneath her coat. Sadly, she shook her head. Kenna's arms began to shake violently with the effort of holding on. The train sounded like a rushing wind, gradually growing louder as its light grew brighter. One of her elbows slipped. Please, is there something I can grab onto? Anything at all? The woman was just a few feet away now. She looked into Kenna's eyes and leaned down, causing Kenna's heart to leap with hope. Then Kenna saw what was bundled in the woman's coat. It was one of those wearable baby carriers. It was empty, its fabric sagging toward the woman's chest. I can't help you. 
Her voice sounded just the same as it had on the phone. The light approached inexorably, like the dawn. Kenneth screamed, as loud as the baby now, as deafening as the screech of the train's brakes as it barreled into the station. And her arms gave way, and she fell. It can be tough being the sensible one when all your friends like to go a bit wild, a little bit goofy, a little bit wacky, getting kind of loud, behaving all rowdy, disrespecting the memorialized dead. But in this tale, shared with us by author Vema Skura, we're reminded that it can be a bad idea not to show due respect to those beyond the grave. Performing this tale are Sarah Thomas, Lindsay Russo, Jeff Clement, Kyle Akers, Dan Zapula, and Danielle McRae. So try to keep your pals grounded and don't let them drag you down with them. Otherwise, you might find yourself stuck in a situation you can't escape. Not even if you rode away on the Paperboy's bike. In my hometown, there's a beautiful, sprawling park. It's several acres of green, with a good portion of it lovingly maintained as a rolling lawn, complete with playground, jogging track, and pavilions. A lot of people consider it the jewel of the city. For my friends and I, though, it will be forever tainted. The sight of unspeakable horrors. The origin of a tragedy that killed half of us, and left the remaining half irrevocably scarred. We were hanging out at my place. My friends Tara, Beth, and Kylie were sleeping over because it was a Friday and both of my parents were going out of town for a friend's wedding. I was considered old enough to stay home by myself, but my parents thought having some friends over would be safer and less scary for me. Maybe if I'd been alone, the whole thing would have been avoided. Two sequels into the Friday the 13th series, a knock at the front door scared me out of my skin. Tara Beth giggled as she got up and trotted over to the front door. Kylie didn't even blink. <laughs> Relax! It's not Jason. It's just Jason. Sadly, I knew exactly what she meant. Jason, as in her boyfriend, not the monster from the movies. It didn't precisely reassure me, though. Why is he here? I didn't like Jason. He was kind of a bad boy, but not in the cute way. More in the obnoxious way. But Tara Beth had been my best friend since I moved to her street when we were five. Tara gave me that scathing look teenage girls are so good at. Pure scoff, complete with an exasperated huff. Ugh. I was still protesting when she opened the door and had to swallow the last of it so that Jason wouldn't hear. 
Hey, Vanessa. Hey, Kylie. What's up? Kylie waved without looking up from the movie. I crossed my arms over my chest and gave him a small, short smile. Hey, Jason. Listen, it's nothing personal, but my parents will kill me if they find out... I caught a glimpse of movement behind him and my arms dropped. So did my faux politeness. Did you bring somebody else? My voice rose to a sharp pitch that I hated, but couldn't help. It happened any time I got good and mad. Two more boys slid out onto the walkway, each of them smiling apologetically. I knew both of them. Eric was in our grade and Jason's BFF. He wasn't as annoying as Jason was, but the association tainted him. Tim was a year younger, Eric's little brother. No way! I cannot believe you just... I was seeing red when I flipped to look at Tara, who I think knew she'd messed up at that point because I didn't lose my temper often. Did you honestly think that this was okay? I was about ready to throw the lot of them out of my house when Jason held up a couple of boxes of pizza and rolled his eyes so hard they came dangerously close to flying back into his skull and rattling around. Relax, Nessa. We weren't going to come in. It's barely nine. The park's right across the street. We thought you girls would like to come hang. He jerked a thumb at the park, and I narrowed my eyes a little. He was lying through his teeth, and I knew it. But it was harder to argue against hanging out in the park when it was barely after sunset. Especially when I'd just drawn the line about them coming into my house. (sighs) I guess. I went to grab my shoes. He did have pizza. We didn't spill into the park until a half hour later, because it took that long to peel Kylie off the TV and get her to put her shoes on. She was a die-hard horror movie fan, and I swear she was addicted to them. It was no longer barely dark, but well into twilight. The faux gas lamps made it seem safer than it probably was. Nothing bad could happen in a well-lit, nicely kept-up area, could it? Especially with so many of us? It wasn't long before Jason produced the first beer, though. I almost got up and went home right then and there, but I'd already made such a fuss about the in-my-house thing that I didn't feel like I could without really damaging my friendship with Tara. Peer pressure is a terrible thing. It would have been better for all of us if I had. Instead, I sat there uncomfortably, trying not to notice him passing the can around, (laughs) or how the laughter got louder and rowdier when he pulled out the second. In fact, I was trying so hard not to notice that I didn't realize what they were talking about until I happened to look up. I'm not scared! (laughs) Eric was laughing while Jason dared him on. He already had one leg swung over the edge of the seat. I got to my knees and started to yell. What the fuck, guys? What the hell is wrong with you? But they were either too drunk, too stupid, or too far away to hear me. Eric settled on the bronze seat and put his feet up on the pedals, looking proud of himself for the whole ten seconds he managed to stay up there before he fell off. I was on my feet by then, running in their direction. I just couldn't believe that they were playing around on a memorial 
for a dead kid. It was just the stupidest, cruelest thing I could imagine. I couldn't stop picturing his parents, what they would have felt seeing some dumb teenagers laughing and climbing all over a replica of their son's bike after losing him the way they had. And not to mention, I knew his brother. Evan and I were in the same class. We were all six when his big brother got hit by the truck while working his delivery route. We'd witnessed the devastation firsthand. Yeah, it had been ten years, but one doesn't just forget something that horrible. And even if they'd had the excuse of not knowing, which they didn't, there was a plaque right there beneath the statue. The Paperboy's Bike, in loving memory of Henry J. Kevins, 1970-1984. It had lights and everything. My turn. Jason climbed on just as I arrived and was reaching for his sleeve, fully intending to knock him off. Look at me! (laughs) I shoved instead. He toppled off the other side, landing across Eric on the grass. What the hell, Nessa? Tara was too giggly to be sober. Eric and Jason were laughing like lunatics. I glowered down at them, disgusted, and then pivoted to look at her. We went to his funeral, Tara! I stabbed a finger in the direction of the plaque. That seemed to take some of the laugh out of her. She gave me an irritated look instead, reaching down to grab the beer can and taking a swig. When did you get so lame, Nessa? I was tempted to knock the can out of her hand, but there were some things a friendship just couldn't endure. When do you turn into such a jerk? I waved at the plaque again. What if Evan saw that? Nobody cares anymore, Nessa. It was like a zillion years ago. What are they going to do? Arrest us? She tossed the mostly empty can on the sidewalk. It clanked and tipped over, spilling suds all over the concrete. I scowled, bending down to pick it up. I think she knew I would, too. I think she was counting on me being very not okay with littering on a dead kid's memorial, because the instant my back was turned, she climbed up on the bike and spread her arms like a tightrope walker, whooping wildly. (laughs) Tim and Kylie grabbed the sides and pretended to push her. I threw the can away and turned on my heel, intending to head home. That was when I saw it for the first time. The blue truck idling at the corner. I'd lived on this block for most of my life and knew everybody on it. No one owned a blue truck. My first thought was that it was an unmarked police car. My second was that it was a pervert. Either way, I was pissed at my soon-to-be former friends, but still felt obligated to warn them. How long has that truck been there? I grabbed Kylie and Tim, physically turning them in that direction. Tim, who'd had the least to drink, kind of shook his head. I don't know. It wasn't there when we got here. I think he was scared of me. Good. That was immensely satisfying at the time, and might have saved his life later. I looked at Kylie. What if it's an undercover police truck? I asked, knowing full well that her dad was the deacon and would have a fit. As expected, she sobered up pretty quick, shooting suddenly nervous glances at it. 
I think we should go. She reached for Tara after I released her. Even Tara, Jason, and Eric were sitting up and looking. No way. Unmarked police cars are always black or white. Jason spoke with the confidence of the irredeemably idiotic. As expected, even though she was drunk and had apparently lost half of her brain cells hanging out with him, Tara sat up straighter on the bike, allowing Kylie to help her off as I walked away. What's it doing there, then? Ew, I bet it's some kind of creep. Kylie let go of Tara and hurried to catch up to me. Probably because I was in volleyball and track and pretty athletic. I'd also been taking mixed martial arts off and on for a few years. Not that it ever came to that. There was never a fight, a physical confrontation. I was almost to the end of the park when the rest of them caught up with me. Tim was carrying the pizza boxes. I tossed the can of beer in the first trash bin I passed, wiping the gross, sticky sensation off on the grass. That hesitation gave them the time they needed to get there, and meant I was just a few feet back when Eric tried to step out into the street. The truck roared to life, headlights blazing, and leaped toward him. The tires squealed and left big, greasy black marks on the street. I could smell the burnt rubber, bitter and pungent. (laughs) Kylie screamed. I tried to lunge for Eric, but Jason got there first. He grabbed him by the back of his flannel shirt and hauled him onto the sidewalk. The truck bounced over the curb and missed him by what could have only been a handful of inches, and then went tearing away into the night. We all stood there, wide-eyed and in shock, for as long as it took for Eric to get back to his feet. He was clearly shaken. His eyes were bright with tears when he looked at Jason. Uh, Thank you. What the fuck? That guy just... He tried to hit you, like, on purpose. We need to call the police. Terabeth nodded. They all did. I wasn't even worried about letting them in the house at that point. Fuck getting grounded. There was some kind of psycho murderer on the loose. I grabbed Tara's arm and started to step off the curb when I heard it again. The same squeal of tires. The same roar of an engine. I threw myself backwards on instinct, taking Tara with me. I looked up just in time to see the truck hop the curb and miss me by inches. That was impossible. There was no way. That was a dead-end street. It couldn't possibly have gotten past us in the last 15 seconds. I scrambled to my feet and raced onto the green, huddling there with my friends in speechless horror. That was the same truck, right? Terabeth nodded. I covered my eyes, feeling like I was going to be sick. It just appeared! Tim sounded like a little kid at that moment. Three or four instead of fourteen. I focused on taking deep breaths, but it was hard to around the taste of burnt rubber in the air. What are we... What are we going to do? The ghost truck is going to kill us, just like Henry. No, it's not. There's houses right over there. Jason shifted and pointed further down the sidewalk, toward the boundary of the park that had no adjacent road. It wasn't connected to anything but someone's lawn. We'll just walk over and ask to use a phone. He was right. But that's... Henry's house. 
we all shared a look. Eventually, Jason shook his head. It, it doesn't matter. We can't stay here forever. We can't cross the road. We have to go that way. He was right. Again. But I didn't like it. We gathered together and prepared to walk to the other end of the park. No one said much at first, but it was pretty clear what we were all thinking. Silent accusations were flying through the air like daggers. I didn't have to be the one to voice them. Tara was the first. She snapped at Jason. This is all your fault! If you hadn't dared him to get on the stupid bike, none of this would be happening! He's the one who got on it! Wow, I thought. Way to throw your best friend under the... I cut the thought off. The analogy made me feel green all over again. What the hell? I was walking ahead of the rest of them, sick to death of their childish antics and bullshit. None of this would have happened. He made air quotes with both hands. If your girlfriend had invited us all over... Which turned all eyes to me. I could feel the blame for not letting them in my house rising and turned around to bawl them out, but stopped. Do you guys smell that? Gasoline. Had no place here. Right smack dab in the middle of the park. But when I turned my head, I saw it. The road. Not the next mile of the park. Henry's house was directly across from us, separated by two dozen feet. I heard the engine rev and froze, staring in disbelief. The others turned around. <laughs> Kylie screamed. Terabeth let out a terrible wail. <laughs> there's no way. 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 There's not supposed to be a road here. There isn't a road here. The house is on the wrong side. The park is bigger than... It has to be fake. I can't hate Eric for saying that. He paid for it. God knows he did. Yeah, yeah, it, it has to be, like, like not real. Ghosts aren't real. It, it must have been the beer. <laughs> I didn't drink any. The smell, the sound, the feel of the truck when it rushed past my face. None of that felt fake. I didn't think there was anything that could fool all five of my senses. The pizza! Maybe those were the wrong kind of mushrooms. We just got the wrong pizza meant for somebody else. Guys, I don't... But before I could finish, Jason bolted. Straight out into the street, sprinting for the other side. He made it about halfway before the truck hit him. He flew so far... I think I blocked everything out but the sound. That sound, though. Oh, that sound. And the shriek Tara produced. I'll never forget that either. It wasn't a natural sound. No human could make that under any other circumstances. Raw, almost animal. It must have torn her throat to shreds. She was still screaming when Eric ran down the sidewalk. He's still alive! I doubted that. I doubted it very much. I just think he hadn't... settled... yet. Eric must have believed. Or maybe he was just in shock, or... I don't know. 
We have to go get him. We can't just leave him there. And out he went. Around the truck came again. Somehow back where it had started without having passed us at all. Headlights a grisly orange, painted with Jason's blood. It jumped when it rolled over him. Bounced. I flinched and looked away. Something hit the ground beside me. I looked down reflexively. It was Eric. His eyes were wide open, but it was clear to me he was gone. Mostly because of the way his body was twisted up. Kylie fainted. Tim turned and looked at me, eyes wide with panic. He's dead. There... That's... My brother! Poor guy. Poor kid. I don't wish that kind of pain on anyone. There's no point. We're gonna die here. We're all going to... And he turned to the road. I just barely managed to hold him back, snagging his arm at the last second and hauling him back into my chest. He wouldn't want you to die. I don't know where the words came from, but they burst out of me with a life of their own. If we just wait, maybe there's a chance. There has to be a way. (laughs) He sobbed. I held him until he stopped trying to tug away, turned him so neither of us had to watch the truck loop, over and over and over until it was a blue blur, lights trailing all around it. When I felt he wasn't going to bolt anymore, I let him go and bent to check on Kylie, and found the newspaper. Right next to Eric, a neatly folded newspaper speckled in blood, filled with horror. I scooped the thing up with a sort of scream I usually reserve for a fat spider and threw it with all my might across the street. <laughs> to my shock and amazement, it made it, flew all the way to the other side, and landed neatly on the lawn of Henry's house. The truck had vanished. I watched for a few minutes more, looked to the left and right. No sign of the truck. I stuck my foot out and tapped the ground. Nothing happened. I took a deep breath and stepped out, holding my breath as I walked. I thought every step was going to be my last. Every single millisecond, I waited to hear the scream of tires and the primal growl of an engine. I didn't dare open my eyes until I kicked the curb and tripped, tumbling onto the sidewalk on the other side, scraped my knees and palms open, but I'd never been so happy to scrape a knee in my entire life. I rolled over and saw Tim, Kylie, and Tara on the other side. Kylie was just starting to sit up with Tim's help. Tara was watching me. I locked eyes with her and smiled, but when she moved toward the road, we both heard it. The engines growl. My heart plummeted. I looked toward the house, Sprinted toward it, actually. But on the way, I got slapped in the back with something that nearly knocked me over. I thought for a second that it was the truck, and my heart hit my ribs so hard I thought it was going to shatter. When I regained my balance and twisted around, realizing what it was that had hit me and that I wasn't dead in the same moment, there was a newspaper lying at my feet. Tim was walking across the road, trembling with terror. I ran back, holding out my arms to him, coaxing him when he had nearly reached the edge of the street, and we both heard the engine roar. I looked up and saw Tara trying to cross. 
too soon, I guessed. Or maybe because she hadn't thrown the paper. Tim told me afterwards they'd handed it to him because he had the strongest arm. The truck nearly mowed them both down. I hauled Tim the last few inches to safety and threw him on the lawn, taking a deep breath and waiting. Sure enough, a few seconds later, a newspaper flew across the road and landed, just barely, on the cusp of the lawn. The truck vanished at the end of the road, and Kylie walked across to me, woodenly, each step halting and awkward. But she made it. She made it across, and the three of us gathered, waiting for Tara's throw. It landed halfway across the street, neatly in the middle of the solid white lines. I heard her scream, and I waited, waited, hoped that it would return to her side the way it had with Tim, Kylie, and me. But it didn't. It sat there in the middle of the road, right between the tires of the truck as it swept around and around and around again. I don't know how long we waited until I turned and sprinted up the lawn to the Kevin's house. I pounded on the door, sobbing the whole time, until I realized there wasn't anyone to answer it. They'd moved across town years ago. This house had been vacant ever since. The second that realization crossed my mind, the door opened, as if of its own volition. There was a teenage boy on the other side. He looked at me, and I looked at him for what felt like an eternity. He looked so much like Evan, I thought. And then he smiled, and I heard the smack. I looked down and saw a newspaper laying at my feet. But it hadn't come from the other side of the road, from Tara. It said, Memorial statue installed at Lincoln Avenue Park in honor of local teen, slain in a hit and run. I don't remember making it to the next house down. I barely remember the elderly couple that answered, even though I'd known them my whole life. The sirens, those are crystal clear. The look on my parents' faces when they got home the next morning, that's clear too. I went to Eric's funeral, mostly just to support Tim. It was hard. It was hard seeing his whole family devastated. I didn't go to Jason's. I regret that a little bit. I just couldn't bring myself to go, knowing they still hadn't found Tara at the time. Her body showed up two weeks later at the far end of the park, curled up next to the fence that divided the Kevin's old property from the public space. She was skin and bones, from what I understand. They said she'd starved to death, just a few feet from help. She must have gone to hide, they said, because obviously no one believed a ghost truck had killed Eric and Jason. She wasn't there when they went to look for her. For a while, they thought she'd been kidnapped. Some folks still think she was, and that the kidnapper just dropped her off at the park when she was on the cusp of death. The community put in a series of speed bumps around the park a few months later. I don't know if that'll help, though. So, for your sake, and the sake of anyone you care about, don't ride the paperboy's bike.
going for regular walks can really help one's mood. Let's say you've recently experienced a major life change. Maybe you've let yourself get trapped in your own head. Going out and getting some fresh air can be one helpful step to break out of that cycle. But in this tale, shared with us by author Jeff Wood, we discover that taking a pleasant stroll can soon take a dark turn if you notice that you're casting two shadows. Performing this tale is Peter Lewis. Ah, but maybe it's nothing. It only happens outside this one specific house, after all. Don't worry about the other you and ignore the glint in the window. Surely it's just a trick of the light. You're a heart attack waiting to happen, my doctor told me. After my wife died, my health began to suffer. My doctor told me if I didn't start getting some exercise, I was going to have some kind of coronary event. He's right. I'm in my early 40s. I'm pretty overweight. So I tried jogging at first. I couldn't even make it a block. Five or six houses down the street and I was bent over, hands on my knees, wheezing. These pains shot through my lower legs like my muscles were tearing off my bones. Later, the doctor told me it was, uh, shin splints. I started walking. The neighborhood I live in is an upper-middle-class subdivision in the suburbs of Denver. The streets are wide and well-maintained. Few cars are parked on the street, most of them tucked away in the two-car garages and expansive driveways of their respective houses. Several schools are spread out through the area, all with nice green campuses, modern playgrounds, football fields, tennis courts. We have two firehouses and five churches. The neighborhoods are all patrolled by tasteful HOAs. 5.30 every weekday afternoon, like clockwork, I come home from work, change into jogging pants and a tee, slip on my running shoes, grab my phone and a bottle of water, and head out the front door. I expected to be alone in my walks. Most people would be inside their homes or inside their cars, I assumed. I was wrong. It turns out lots of people are walkers and joggers, and a lot of them at that hour of the day, right after work and school. I've been lonely since my wife died. Uh, the human interaction helps, even at a distance. My route varies. The streets are not laid out on a grid, but weave through the landscape in curves and circles. Streets unexpectedly ending in cul-de-sacs and roundabouts. As a result, getting from one place to another rarely involves taking a straight path. Nearly every day I walk, I walk by the shadow house. I don't try to. The geometry of the streets must somehow lead me there. I approach it from the same direction every time I pass. West to east. Since I walk at around the same time every day, the sun is always behind me, casting long shadows in front of me whenever I pass the house. So why do I call it the shadow house? Well, because of the shadow that walks beside me whenever I pass. When I turn the corner to enter the block, my shadow swings around in front of me, keeping me company as I walk, lengthening as the sun lowers into the sunset. 
As I passed the property line of the house, the place where the well-tended lawn of the house next door morphs into the weed-choked soil of the shadow house, another shadow joins my own. One moment, my own shadow is stretched out before me, the shadow of my head bobbing along with the rhythm of my walk. The next moment, two shadows loom in front of me. Two heads glide along the surface of the concrete in step to my gate. After I pass the property line on the far side of the house, the shadow disappears. The first few times this happened, I stopped immediately in front of the house and turned around to look behind me. No one was there. I saw no object that could have taken the space between the sun and the sidewalk. I assumed those first few times that it it was the exercise. My body, unused to the exertion, was creating sights in my mind that did not exist in real life. I... I don't think that anymore. I... I came home wanting to tell my wife. She wasn't home, of course. She's been gone for nearly a year. It took me several moments to realize it. I started talking and then cut myself off, remembering. I keep forgetting she's not here anymore. Anyway, what is this shadow standing next to my own, showing itself only within the boundaries of this one house? Is the shadow there all the time and only shows itself when I pass this house? Or is the shadow specific to this house, this place? Is the shadow specific to me? I began to examine the house as I passed. Someone lived there, male, sat in the mailbox, but not an unusually large amount. The lawn was unkempt, all weeds and cracked soil, but the weeds had been recently cut back. Drapes covered the windows, lights could sometimes be seen in the rooms inside. No toys scattered on the lawn, no basketball hoops in the driveway. I have never seen anyone on the property, inside or outside. There may have been a car inside the garage, but never one parked outside. Something hung in the attic window. I couldn't tell what it was. Sunlight reflected off it. It could have been a prism, or maybe a small pane of etched glass. It reminded me of these earrings my wife used to wear. Someone gave them to her for Christmas two years ago. A friend, she told me. She used to wear them often. Which friend? I'd ask her. She never told me. I think I know who gave them to her, but I never asked. I kept my hypothesis to myself. After the earrings, I began serving her a glass of wine every night before supper. She never said no. In fact, she greeted it. She seemed flattered by the gesture. She drank the entire glass of wine I provided her every night, until the end. I tried to avoid the house after I first noticed the shadow and realized it was something more than a trick of the light. I found that even when I tried to avoid the house, I couldn't. The house was always there, along my path. I was certain nothing supernatural was to blame. It was just one of those abstractions I thought about as I walked, uh, how the street plan within a subdivision could funnel foot traffic so that it required to pass a particular spot in order to travel from point A to point B. It's like a math problem, a mapping and geometry problem, a problem whose solution could be found through careful application of science and logic. So no, I never actually thought the house 
found me or even sought me. The vagaries of mathematics, civil engineering, and random chance colluded to put this house on my path every day I walked. I accepted it as an unavoidable daily occurrence. The shadow bounced to the same rhythm as my footsteps. Every time I took a step, the shadow from my own body leaped forward. The other shadow leapt forward as well. We were like two friends whose gates have synchronized. My, uh, my wife and I used to walk together back in the good old days before the earrings. Back when I loved her and she loved me and we lived together in our perfect little house. After we ate supper, after we put away the dishes, her washing, me drying, we'd walk the neighborhood together, hand in hand as the sun set. We even passed this house. More than once, I remember her pace slowing as we neared it the first time. I remember her head turning to look in the windows as we passed. I asked her what she was looking for, but she didn't respond. It was as if she'd been there before. I accepted the shadow as part of the landscape of my daily walks, no different than the ceramic gnomes in the garden a few doors down from my house, the flags and political signs on the lawn across the street. I gave up trying to control my route and accepted that my path would always take me to the shadow house at some point during my walk. The shadow house rewarded me for my acceptance. Shadow House showed me my wife's earrings again, shining through the attic window every day as I took my walk. My wife was wearing them. My wife, who had been dead and buried for almost a year, I simply looked up at the attic window and saw her. The sunlight bouncing off the earrings caught my eye and drew it to the window. She stood there and watched me pass. She made it clear with the intensity of her gaze that she was focused on no one but me. I slowed, but did not stop. She held a glass of wine. She took a step closer to the window. She smiled thinly. Her head turned to track me as I passed. She watched as I walked past her for several weeks after that. Always her thin smile followed me as her earrings danced in the sunlight. Always she held the glass of wine I'd given her. Always the shadow walked beside me as I passed. Sometimes glare from the sunlight prevented me from seeing her, but most days she waited on me as I waited on the sight of her, wearing the earrings, holding the wine. I, I knew why she held the wine glass. I wondered why she wore the earrings. She was not buried with them. The funeral home had dressed her in the earrings when they prepared the body, but I insisted the earrings be taken off her ears. I took them, put them in my pocket. I was sure I'd thrown them away later that night. Clearly, I'd forgotten to. I didn't quit my walks after I spied my dead wife in the attic window. In fact, the sight made me more resolute to continue my exercises. One day, while passing the house, my eyes dropped from the empty window frame to the door below. The door was open. The door had never been open before. Twin shadows slung to my left as I turned and walked up the crooked path of stepping stones that led to the porch. 
I stepped up to the threshold of the door, shielded my eyes with the palm of my hand, and looked inside. The shadowed rooms beyond the doorway were sparsely filled with furniture, a couch hulking in the center of a room, a chair hiding in the corner. No paintings or posters adorned the walls, no carpet or rugs protected the hardwood floor. Candlelight flickered from distant rooms. I entered the house blinking with the change of light. A staircase to my right led to the next floor, and I instinctively took it. Chalk drawings faded with time tattooed the steps of the stairs. Crude drawings I could not decipher scribbled characters that seemed like letters of a foreign alphabet. As I stepped off the stairway and onto the landing, the figures trailed off down a hallway and toward a smaller door tucked modestly into an alcove in the wall. I followed the figures walking past cracked hallway walls to a door that opened onto a set of boxy, workmanlike stairs. I knew before I mounted them where they led. I walked up the steps to an unfinished attic. Rafters leapt from timber to timber overhead. Simple two-by-fours framed the walls. A tumble of boxes sat hunched together in the dust of the corners. Sunlight spilled in from the window at the far end of the attic. My wife had watched me from that window. She was not there now. I walked towards the window. My feet stamped prints into the dust on the floor. I reached the glass and noticed my late wife's earrings sitting on the dusty sill. I recalled immediately the gentle manner in which she had set them down on her bedside table every night. I think she left them to keep me company. I... I hope so. I miss her. I looked out the glass of the window. My motionless body lay on the sidewalk below, blood soaking into the concrete beneath my head. Three neighbors approached my body. One had a cell phone and was dialing 911. The other two discussed seeing me clutch my hands to my chest, falling forward so abruptly it looked as though I'd been pushed. It looked like a heart attack, they were telling each other. <laughs> my doctor was right. I was a heart attack waiting to happen. The police came. An ambulance came, and then the coroner. I don't know where my wife went. She's not at the window. She's not in the house anymore. It's some sort of trick, you know. She must have cast some sort of spell, because I am in the house now. I live here. I've tried to leave. I can't. I watch the people as they pass, walking or jogging or biking or driving by, and I trace their paths with greedy eyes and a thin smile. I wonder where they go when they leave my eyesight. I'll look for you to walk past me. Look for me? Hmm? A trick of the light? From the attic window, a silhouette cast on the sidewalk. When you see me, you'll know. I am the shadow that walks beside you.
In our final tale, we join a man with a unique gift. Sometimes, if he finds himself in the exact spot that someone died, he's able to relive the moments of their death. A scary power, I'm sure you'll agree. And in this tale, shared with us by author Sergeant Darwin, our hero uncovers some particularly troubling truths when he moves into a new house. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett, Nicole Goodnight, Ellie Hirschman, Lindsay Russo, Aaron Lillis, Nicole Doolin, Mary Murphy, and Kristen DiMercurio. So there's no point forwarding any mail from previous occupants. It seems like they all died. So says the house, and so says the woman in white. My earliest memory is of dying. I was 40 years old, holding my mother's hand, walking to church alongside her. She was wearing high heels and a blue skirt, patterned with red cherries and pears. As we walked, I saw a park across the street, complete with swing set and slide, and decided that I wanted to be there. So I wrenched free of my mother's hand and ran out into the street. My mother screamed and lunged for me, but she was too late. I was halfway across the road when a large gray truck sped around the corner. Don't worry, it missed me. The truck swerved and slammed on its brakes, skidding to a stop with me on one side and mom on the other. With this obstacle in her path, I had enough of a head start to continue my sprint towards the park. I was deaf to her screams, now infused with anger rather than mortal panic, as I sped underneath one of the park's giant elm trees, the coveted swing set drawing nearer with every tiny step. And then, just as suddenly as I had taken off, I collapsed, skidding to an ungraceful halt on the ground spoiling my Sunday best with grass stains and dirt. I was being chased. From below, my friends cheered wildly. I was the undisputed champion of time tag and had been all summer. But my title was in jeopardy. Zack was gaining fast. He and I were the only two players left and the timer on my wristwatch said I only had to evade him for 23 more seconds. But why, I asked myself as I skinned my knee against Bark, had I climbed this stupid tree? I had more questions, too, like, who am I? Where did Mom go? And why am I so much bigger now? Higher and higher we climbed. Zack could almost reach out and touch me. 14 seconds. I slid myself along a branch, hoping to reach another one nearby. Instead, my shoes skidded across a patch of smooth wood, and down I went. My stomach seemed to fall at a different speed than the rest of me. I hadn't realized I'd climbed so high. I hit the ground, 
Not with a thud, but with a revolting crunch. I'd landed on my back and had felt my ribs all break at once. There was no pain, just a peculiar, powerful tightening in my chest, like I was being squeezed by a giant snake. I'm going to have to go to the hospital, when my parents couldn't afford it. How could I have been so stupid? Dad's gonna kill me, I thought hazily, assuming I don't die right here and now. I was vaguely aware of the swing set off to the side, wafting in the summer breeze, and of my friends gathering around me in reverence. As my mind faded back into reality, a high-pitched beeping cut the silence like a scalpel, signaling that I was still the undisputed champion of Time Tag. I awoke, terribly confused, in the shade of the giant elm. I heard shouts and sat up to see the driver of the great truck running over to me, my mother trailing behind barefoot, clutching her high heels. When she reached me, she dropped her shoes and took my face in both her hands. Are you all right? What happened to you? Tripped, I said, because it seemed like the thing to say, I suppose. In truth, I had no idea what had happened to me. I couldn't even begin to process it. She let out her breath in a rush and clutched my head tightly to her breast. Don't you ever do that again. I won't, Mom. It was the first time I died. It would be far from the last. It's amazing, the things you don't think of when you're only eight years old. Though I've never told anyone about it. I remembered clearly the strange and terrible experience I'd had on that misbegotten walk to church. And I, along with every other child in town, was constantly reminded of the dangers of climbing trees. The sad case of Quinn Pleasance, a local kid who had died years earlier after falling from a tree, was happily weaponized by the adults as a cautionary tale. There was an obvious connection to be made between these two occurrences, but somehow... I'd not yet made it. That wouldn't be true for much longer. It was the summer of 2009. I was walking with my best friend Caden down Main Street in Swiss Knife, which I still call my hometown even though I haven't lived there in over a decade now. Before you ask, it's named after the Swiss Knife River. You could ask me how that river got its name, but as I'm not an encyclopedia, I couldn't tell you. Look, the point is... We'd just gotten out of a movie at the Sticky Shoe, which was the universally and affectionately used moniker for our town's dollar theater. No need to ask where that name came from. It was summer, so the street was hot. The movie had been good, so we were excited. And yet a chilly sense of turmoil rested unspoken between us. The past few months had been bad for my parents. So bad, in fact, that my mother had begun hinting that she and I would not be residents of Swiss Knife for much longer. As for my dad, well, he didn't talk to me much anymore. Or even look at me, for that matter. 
Between the two of them, there was a carnival of bitterness and betrayal to which I would be totally oblivious until years later. All I knew then was that these summer days in Swiss Knife, with Caden and with the sticky shoe, might be running out. And thus they were filled with a sense of urgency that could at times verge on ruinous. Still, the dread was buried deep on this particular July afternoon, as my best friend and I strolled down Main Street and talked animatedly about the movie that we'd just seen. No, no, no. The most cool part was when... Caden shivered violently, abruptly, then stopped dead in his tracks. Whoa, (laughs) I just got these crazy goosebumps. I turned and began to reply. That's weird. It's so hot. That's weird. It's so hot. And before I could say outside, I was thrown to a new world inside my mind. A world where it was not Caden by my side, but a pretty teenage girl. A world in which I was much taller and could see tanned, lean muscle on my forearm where before there had only been pale skin and freckles. The pretty girl was clutching my arm and laughing merrily. I was in Swiss Knife, on the exact same part of Main Street where Caden and I had just been walking, and that beginning of fall nip hung in the night air. The street was mostly empty, save for a few people half a block ahead who'd exited the new Cinema 6, a movie theater in our town, more quickly than us. But what was the rush? I was with Sadie, my best girl, and nothing else mattered. Strangely, I'd also never seen Sadie before in my life, and the term best girl sounded odd to me. Did I mean girlfriend? And why were we both wearing clothes that looked like they could be from my grandparents' photo albums? I felt it just seconds before I saw it. A sense of unease, as if something was very wrong, but I didn't know what. And then headlights from the opposite side of the road, veering over towards us. They were so bright that I couldn't see the face of the person driving. All I could see was the car... A bulky, brand-new Chevy that by the summer of 2009 might have been sold as an antique. The car struck me with a force I couldn't have imagined. And it hit Sadie, too. And then it hit the outside wall of the pizza shop behind us. I was pinned in between. There was no pain. I couldn't see Sadie. My last glimpse of her had been a canary yellow shoe soaring somewhere off to the left. I smelled pizza and gasoline. As my head slumped down on the twisted hood of the Chevy and my vision blurred, I vaguely wondered if I'd be hurt too bad to play in the homecoming game next weekend. Dude... Dude, wake up! I was on Main Street. My head was throbbing badly. And Caden was kneeling next to me, shaking my shoulder. I opened my eyes fully and sat up, hand at the back of my head. 
What happened? Caden's eyes were wide. I don't know. You just, like, passed out. You hit your head. Huh. Tears stung my eyes. From the pain, but also from what I'd just seen. It had been so horrible. So real. Let's go to my house. We have Otter Pops. Three nights later, my grandma, mom's mom, came over. Dad had moved into a hotel room that day, which I remember finding strange because hotels were places where you stayed when you went to Disneyland and stuff like that. Grandma lived close, so she came to help Mom, who had been crying a lot. I was totally bewildered by the whole unhappy circumstance, but knew my mother well enough not to ask too many questions about it. But there was something else I'd been curious about, too. Grandma? I asked over dinner. You've lived here your whole life, right? In Swiss Knife? Oh, since I was about 14. Yep. <clears throat> Summer after eighth grade, Daddy got the factory job, and that took us here. And I've been here ever since. In fact... You know, old Buck, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Mr. Wilfork down the block. We rented out his basement for a year while Daddy was building the new house. 57, that would have been. No, 58, or was it? Oh, hell, mine's not what it used to be. The answer was in keeping with every other answer I'd heard her give about her past, in which she'd answer not only the question you asked but also five others you didn't, and then close by lamenting that her mind just wasn't what it used to be. Did anyone ever get hit by a car on Main Street? A long time ago by the sticky shoe? Oh, oh, yes, a dreadful thing. You know, it was uh, Sadie Prentice and that boy she was with. Well, that wasn't her last name at the time, of course. It was, uh, oh, hell. Anyway, hit by some out-of-towner drunk off his ass. Mom? Well, he was. Killed himself, the fool, and, and that football boy, too. Dead right there on the street, apparently. And of course, you've seen what happened to poor Sadie. I looked at Grandma, uncomprehending. Mrs. Prentice from church. My eyes went wide. Mrs. Prentice, whose wheelchair had been perched in the aisle of our church every Sunday for as long as I could remember? That was her? That was the pretty girl I'd seen on my arm? Inside my mind, puzzle pieces that I hadn't even known existed were rapidly fastening together. Now why are you bringing up a crazy thing like that? I shook my head, partially in response and partially to quell the memory of what Quinn Pleasance's ribs had sounded like when they cracked through his lungs. Uh, no reason. Will you pass the corn, please? I never did tell Caden what really happened to me on Main Street that day. 
Not that I had much occasion to. Mom and I moved three weeks later. We found ourselves in yet another smallish, oldish town full of people who'd lived there most of their lives. A lot of those places around, I guess. This one was called Wheeler, which was a very boring name for a town as far as I was concerned. There was a main street in Wheeler, but no dollar theater. No theater at all, actually. It had been ten months to the day since I'd seen Dad. At first, I thought he was just busy, but I'd quickly come to realize that the man wanted nothing to do with me. I spent a lot of time angry about it, but when Mom let slip to me years later that he wasn't my real dad, a part of me understood. Mom had been drunk when she told me. She'd really first taken to drinking in Wheeler, even on the day we moved into our sprawling, decrepit new rental, which apparently had once functioned as a sort of hospice care facility before being remodeled. I had to unload most of the U-Haul with Derek, some weird guy she'd found to help us move, while Mom sipped wine from a steadily replenishing glass and slurred instructions on where to put down boxes. There'd been a lot of weird guys around ever since we'd moved to Wheeler. But these sorts of things sail over a nine-year-old's head, and so for me, life in Wheeler went back to a close approximation of normal. I started at a new school, made new friends, and Grandma even drove up for dinner on Sunday nights. On one of those nights, she tottered up our driveway, struggling with a large container. I rushed out the front door to help her. What's this? I reached to take the container, a large crate, from her. She didn't need to answer. A small yip from inside the crate announced the arrival of Chuck. A ten-week-old Siberian husky who I immediately loved with my whole heart. Chuck wasn't a substitute for a dad, but he was something that kept me busy, and maybe that's all you really need in the end. I fed Chuck, trained him, took him on runs, and cleaned all his poop. I gave him baths, clipped his nails, and kept an eye out for any health problems. When necessary, I scheduled veterinary appointments myself. In return, he gave me undying loyalty and the sort of starstruck, giddy love only a puppy can manage. There was just one tiny problem. Chuck didn't like the house. Or at least, he didn't like certain parts of the house. I couldn't figure it out. He'd get on my bed, but never the guest bed. He'd whine warily at one random place on the kitchen floor. What's the matter, boy? And he wouldn't go inside my mom's bedroom at all. At first, I thought it was just a weird personality quirk. It wasn't until one day in the fall of 2011 that I realized it might be something else entirely. I'd just gotten home from school, fifth grade now, and Chuck greeted me at the door with sloppy kisses. I set my backpack down, got myself a glass of ice water from the fridge, and walked up the stairs, Chuck keeping pace at my side. As I turned down the long upstairs hallway toward my bedroom, though, Chuck stopped in his tracks, whimpering softly. 
What's wrong, boy? He just sat on his hind legs, staring intently at the closed door right next to my bedroom. The guest room. Yeah, I know you don't like it in there. I took another couple of steps toward my bedroom when Chuck started to growl. He never growled. I looked back at him, eyebrows raised. He was more alert than I'd ever seen him. Something was wrong. I must have stared at that door for a solid minute. Mom? I eventually called out, my voice a bit muted, hesitant to make too loud a noise. I didn't know whether or not she was home. I'd given up trying to figure out her schedule. Chuck took a careful step towards the guest room door, then immediately retreated back. My heart was thumping in my throat. I took a deep breath. Then, with a clamming palm, I opened the guest room door and looked inside. But it wasn't the guest room at all. I mean, don't get me wrong, it was the same room. Same ceiling, same window, same notch in the far wall, but it was different. A ghastly papering of cream and teal stripes, totally unfamiliar, lined the walls. The bed, which sat right where the guest bed had, was old-looking, with a painted metal frame and clean white linens. The only thing that seemed out of place was an ominous dark stain on the floor beside the bed. This wasn't quite the same as that long-ago day in the park, or what I'd seen outside the sticky shoe more than two years earlier, but it felt similar. I was glimpsing something. A memory. I just wasn't enveloped in it. Yet. But that was coming, I could tell. Like a torturous sneeze that just... wouldn't. One sharp, devastatingly loud bark from Chuck snapped me back to my senses. My chest heaved, and my hands shook. I looked around. It was the guest room again, through and through. Navy blue wallpaper, my parents' old bed, a small brown dresser my grandma had given us years earlier. Yep, the guest room. Same as always. Only now I couldn't help wondering, what happened here? That question had an answer, and it was more noxious and foul than I could have imagined. I wouldn't begin to learn it for another ten months. July 2012. I remember the date so well because Wheeler had gotten a brand new, state-of-the-art movie theater, but I'd been scared to go. A shooting in a Colorado theater had just shocked the nation. I'd begun to think more deeply about the things I'd seen. The deaths I'd seemingly experienced, albeit through another's eyes. Why had these visions come to me? Why had I been granted this terrifying, macabre privilege? Surely there was a reason. And I determined that it was up to me to discover it. And so it was, 
that I resolved to spend a night, not in my own bed, but on the old lumpy mattress in the guest room next door. I began the evening more melodramatically than I now care to admit, lighting candles and chanting the only Latin words I knew, E Pluribus Unum. I briefly considered sprinkling salt on the floor, but I knew I'd never get it out of the cracks in the hardwood. Still, with only a few horror movies under my belt, I'd managed to throw together a perfectly respectable seance, and I hoped that it would set a nice mood for any ghosts who wanted to show me how they died. I went to bed disappointed, drifting away in the wee hours of the morning, having spent a thoroughly boring night staring at the moonlight reflected against the notch on the wall. I woke briefly before it was light out, and was at first confused why the window was on the wrong side of the room. Then I remembered that I was in the guest room, and made to rub my eyes, and... And I was jarred fully awake by the sight of my saggy, wrinkled, liver-splotched hand. I attempted to sit bolt upright, but received a sharp pain in my spine for my trouble, and scarcely moved an inch. I felt so tired. Almost dead, really. But there was no fear of the end. Only resigned, reluctant acceptance. The party had grown stale. It was almost time to leave. Death had already come for my parents, my husband, my old friends. I could be no different. So why were my palms sweating? Why was my weak, decrepit heart pounding against my ribcage in desperation? I was scared. Terrified, even. But of what? I didn't know. I just couldn't remember. The doorknob turned with a creak, and the door swung open, and in walked the devil herself. The one who frightened me, even when death did not. The woman in white. Hello, Dorothy. A light smile graced her beautiful lips. Why did she have to be beautiful? It would somehow be easier if she were not. I turned my head slightly to see what she wheeled in behind her. A cart with a tray on top. On the tray were various needles, formulas, units of serrated, violent-looking surgical equipment. What would she do with them? I couldn't remember everything, but I remembered the screams. The screams of all the others. I croaked. No, please. There, there, Dorothy. She closed the door behind her, and the lock clicked with finality. This will only hurt for a while. 
I suppose we've reached the part of the story where I tell you about Mrs. Vance. Miss Vance was my eighth grade history teacher. Most of the students liked her a lot. I never did. And for a long time, it was a complete mystery why. She was nice, funny, and obviously cared about her job. Though middle-aged, she was exceptionally pretty in a way that sometimes made it hard to focus on what she was saying. We'd spent most of the year in her class talking about the history of our state, but had recently turned toward family history and how it was a kind of history we could all easily access. We were encouraged to talk to our parents, our grandparents, and learn as much as we could about our genealogy. The final project was to present our findings to the class. To demonstrate, Miss Vance prepared a presentation about her own family history. She began by talking about herself, how she'd grown up in Wheeler, been raised by a single mother and never married, though she did have a son who was grown up and living far away. The slide flipped from a picture of her child to a picture of her father, from modern-day color to an old-timey sepia. Unfortunately, I never really knew my dad. He disappeared when I was very, very young. He might have run away. Something might have happened to him. We'll probably never know. But I suppose every family has a few mysteries. <clears throat> my mother, Edith, however, the real Ms. Vance, as I like to call her, she still lives in Wheeler to this day. Though she's a very old lady now. The picture on the slideshow changed once more, and I audibly gasped as a woman, movie star beautiful, appeared on the classroom screen, smiling sweetly and dressed in a medical uniform. White, of course. A few kids turned to look at me, and I did my best to turn my gasp into a cough. I barely even registered as Miss Vance gushed about her mother, who had been an administrator and hospice nurse at the Halliburton home, a local facility where elderly people would go to live out their final days. I was too numb with shock to notice much of anything besides the photograph, taken in a building that was now my home, of a woman who I knew to be a murderer. I'd begun to think of my visions as marks, left unwittingly by terrible deaths. I had no idea why I could see them, or what I was supposed to do about them, but I knew one thing for certain. Edith Vance was the most vile woman who had ever been born. I'd learned to live with the memory, not even mine, of falling from that tree in the park. The smell of gasoline as it singed someone else's nostrils outside a theater that would one day be known as the Sticky Shoe. But those were nothing, nothing, compared to what had happened to the poor woman called Dorothy on the night that the woman in white walked into her room. The former I remembered, the latter I could never forget. It hadn't been an isolated case, either. Dorothy had known to fear her, recalled the screams of the others, even as her mind was fading and she could recall little else. How many others had there been? I sat on this question and on the identity of the woman in white for nearly three years. I simply didn't know what to do. 
At least not until the day Mom finally got the pantry door unstuck. The house had been a fixer-upper, to put it charitably, when we'd bought it years earlier. But we hadn't done much fixing up. The realtor had told Mom that we'd have a pantry, in theory, but that the previous owners hadn't been able to get the door open. There was ample enough cupboard space that we never put much effort into it, beyond a few errant tugs at the knob. But on this day, Mom's drinking habit had finally tipped beyond what our cupboards and fridge could hold. She'd needed somewhere to put the rest of her liquor, and it was with an addict's determination for a fix that she managed the impossible. It was wonderful to have a pantry, she'd gushed that evening, only she'd have to figure out how to get rid of that terrible chill in there. I waited for Mom to retire to her bedroom for the night before making my way to the pantry door. I'm still not sure how, but I knew I'd find a mark inside. Only the details remained, waiting to be discovered. I opened the door. I opened the door, shivering as I stepped inside, grateful to be away from that Wheeler winter air. Jesus, this place was freezing. A fresh pang of guilt perched atop an already abundant layer of the stuff. How could Sarah have left him all the way out here? There was a mahogany coat rack near the door, but I had no intention of removing my coat. Tattered though it was, I was numb with cold and wore only a thin blouse underneath. I stamped my feet on the mat to knock off the snow, then strode to the front desk, where an impossibly gorgeous woman, dressed in white, looked up from her work. She smiled sweetly at me. How can I help you, ma'am? I spoke clearly, forcefully, in hopes that an air of confidence might help my chances. I'm here to pick up my father, Vernon Chadwick. The woman, Edith, her name tag said, continued to smile, though the sweetness seemed to fade a bit. And you are? I'm his daughter, Geraldine. Edith opened a drawer and pulled out a file. Hmm. It says here that Vern was placed by a woman named Sarah Trevor. My sister. I struggled to keep the disdain from my voice. She shouldn't have... dumped him here like this. I've only just found out. I'm terribly sorry... She did not look sorry at all. But your sister has already paid a substantial sum to place your father in our care. I'm afraid I can't allow anyone except her or her husband to remove him. What if I paid you? Desperation crept into my voice. I had no money to pay, of course, but I had bigger problems at the moment. You don't understand... There are policies in place here. Regulations. Paperwork. I can't just let anyone come in and snatch away one of my residents whenever they please. I don't even have any proof that you are who you say you are. 
I scrambled to the torn pocket of my coat for my wallet so that I could show this woman my ID. But I didn't have it. I'd left immediately after finding out Dad was here, and I hadn't even thought to bring it. Can I... Can I at least see him? He'll be able to tell you who I am. What was left of Edith's smile faded entirely, and her face, still beautiful, was now terrible, too. Vern won't be able to tell us anything at all, I'm afraid. What are you talking about? Of course he will. Listen, I'm not leaving until you... Edith held up a hand and interjected with an impatient air. Ma'am. But then our eyes met, and her expression softened. Okay, all right. But you'll need to fill out some forms. She gestured to a room behind her. Back there, you'll see an open closet. There will be a few clipboards on a shelf. Grab one of those and fill out the papers on it. I breathed a sigh of relief, almost unable to comprehend how quickly Edith's demeanor had changed. It had been jarring, certainly, but not unwelcome. And once I fill out these forms, I thought, as I walked into the other room and grabbed a clipboard, I'll be able to see... Every muscle in my body clamped up at once as a needle, long and thin, slid into my neck. I lost my balance, falling backward, but could not move my arms enough to catch myself. I hit the floor with a thud, my head smacking the wood. I realized with horror as I lay there that I was completely paralyzed. I couldn't move at all. From behind me, I felt Edith's hands slide onto my armpits. She dragged me across the floor, then laid me down roughly. Something was leaking passively from the hole in my neck, though I didn't know if it was blood or whatever she'd injected me with. My head was pointed at the ceiling, and I heard a small commotion next to me. But I couldn't turn to see. But then... Edith knelt beside me, and with one hand, nails exquisitely polished, she tilted my head to the side. There was a rug bunched on the floor, moved from its place, and an open trap door with a ladder leading into darkness. And there was that sweet smile again. Geraldine, do you see that cellar? You're going to die down there. And it's all because you're an ugly, tiresome woman. And I don't want to look at you anymore. And with that, she grabbed me by the front of my old, ratty coat and hurled me roughly through the hole in the floor. I regained consciousness near the pantry, lying in my own sweat. I wasn't sure why I'd awoken so suddenly. Perhaps Geraldine had landed on her neck, I mused. Such a fate would surely have been preferable to whatever Edith had in store for her. I got to my hands and knees, feeling weak, and looked toward the place where the trap door had been hidden, directly under our kitchen table. But it wasn't there anymore, just a flat hardwood surface. 
I crawled over to it and looked more closely. There was a slight difference in color. Some planks of wood were newer than others. There had been something here, but no longer. The sound of Chuck a few feet away, whining at his customary spot at the kitchen floor, tore me from my thoughts. It would be easy, I realized, to remove access to a building cellar, but harder to remove the cellar itself. And I knew, as surely as I knew the color of my own eyes, that if someone were to rip out our kitchen floor, that they would find a cellar underneath, and a dusty set of bones, perhaps still clad in an old, tattered coat. I knew something else, too. What to do next. I rang the doorbell and waited for a moment. But it wasn't long before the old lady answered, smiling sweetly. Oh, come in, come in. She ushered me inside, pointing at a mahogany coat rack in her entrance hall. Hang your coat there. Now I've got hot water on the stove for tea. Let me offer you a cup. I nodded my agreement and followed her into a tidy, spacious house. It was elegant without being showy, the decor timeless. She gestured to a couch in her living room, and before long she tottered back into the room with two steaming mugs of tea. She sat on a plush armchair across from me. It's nice to meet you, Edith. Well... I just can't imagine why anyone would want to bother with me. But regardless, you seem like a very nice young man, and I'm glad to be speaking with you. I grinned and pulled out my phone. Do you mind if I record this? It'll help our conversation flow more naturally if I'm not taking notes. She hesitated for an almost unnoticeable moment before nodding her assent. Yes, of course, that's fine. Excellent. I started my voice recording app, set my phone down, and began what would prove to be a very short interview. So, uh, as Miss Vance, uh, your daughter, I mean, I, I call her Miss Vance, probably told you, I'm a writer with the high school newspaper, The Forecaster? Yes. We're doing profiles on people in our community who are uh, getting on in years, but who have made a lot of great contributions in their lifetime that can sometimes go unnoticed or unappreciated. Well, I'm certainly getting on in years, but... She paused for a moment, as if choosing her words carefully. But I'm pleased with how I spend them. I'm pleased with what I did. I'm sure you are. Now, what your daughter may not have told you is that I have a particular interest in telling your story because you worked at the Halliburton home. I'm sure you've seen that it's been remodeled into a house since then. Oh, yes. I ran the place, in fact. And Jacqueline mentioned that you live there now, which I think is just wonderful. I'm so glad the old bones are still around. 
It took me a moment, but I eventually realized that Jacqueline had to be Miss Vance, and continued. No sense in prolonging anything. So, my first question. Did you ever meet anyone who was angry that their family member had been put in hospice care? Maybe they would have come back one night saying they didn't approve and they wanted this person, their father, let's say, to be given back to them? Believe me when I tell you that a smile has never fallen off a human head so fast. Why on earth would your first question be... Because the ghost of Vernon Chadwick's daughter, Geraldine, appeared to me and told me all about it. She's still under our kitchen, you know. I suppose the ghost bit wasn't exactly true, but it had the intended effect. Edith was completely stunned. I wish you could have seen her face. Okay, so pass on question one, then. Next question. When you killed Dorothy, uh, the woman who was staying in what's now our guest room, how hard was it to clean up all the blood after? I, I only ask because she didn't show me that part. I mean, I, I saw the razors and the bit with the intestines, but uh, I can't imagine it would have been very fun cleaning up. I... I'm, I'm going to be sick. Okay, uh, but before you go throw up or whatever, one more question. Are you worried about what's going to happen when you die? By this point, Edith had turned as white as the medical gown she once wore. Are you threatening me? Oh, no. Actually, uh, I mean, I'm not a psychopath, so I'm not going to hurt a sweet old lady, obviously. Thank you for the tea, by the way. I held up my mug before taking a sip. I was having more fun than I expected. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe there's a bit of psychopath in all of us. I don't even want to bring you to any kind of earthly justice, given that it sounds like a lot of trouble and no offense, but you're probably not going to last much longer anyway. I'm just wondering, like, when you die, you know you're going to have to answer to them, right? Who? The people you murdered at Halliburton Home. They're going to be waiting for you. Surely you didn't expect to face no consequence. <gasps> you're a nasty liar. Edith was clearly shaken, all pretense of sweetness now absent. I wondered how this venomous being before me had ever been capable of playing the kindly old woman. I shook my head. How else would I know this, Edith? Ask yourself. Really ask yourself. Is there any other way? She sat, staring at her lap. And I stood. I should go, before you try and stick a needle in my neck. <laughs> I'll write a nice article about you, though. I promise. Her eyes flickered over to my phone, still recording the conversation. Like I said, Edith, I'm not here to get you in trouble. I'm here to take away your peace. My... my peace? Yes. You didn't just murder people, Edith. You tortured them. Maimed them. Many of them spent their final days terrified of the night you'd walk through their door. I don't know why you did it. But I know how the people you did it to felt. 
And I think it's only right that, in your own final days, you feel the same way. I paused for a moment before concluding. They agree. Edith died only six months later. I went to the funeral. Miss Vance, of course, was there, too. Thank you for that lovely article you wrote. She wasn't quite the same in those last few months. I'm just so glad you were able to speak with her before she started to go downhill. It was my pleasure. Edith was one of a kind. I glanced at the corpse in the casket. Skin sallow. Expression vacant. And didn't feel much of anything. So sorry for your loss. I lied. I couldn't yet empathize with what it must feel like to lose a mother. I wouldn't lose my own for another two years. My mom went the way you might expect, if you've read this far. A deadly cocktail. She lay in bed for over 36 hours before I noticed something was unusual. I emailed my professors and told them I needed some time to handle everything. They were very understanding, of course. Journalism programs aren't exactly the most demanding on offer. I buried my mom. I spent months trying to sell the house. Eventually, I was told I should wait, that I could get more money when the market swings. I left my mom's room untouched, unentered for almost a year. But a couple of weeks ago, I decided to sleep in there. I suppose I was looking for her mark. I found a mark. But it wasn't hers. It was Vernon Chadwick's. I slept in there again the next night. Again the night after, and again and again and again. Chuck, my loyal, beautiful old dog, stayed far away each time. All told... The woman in white killed nine people in that room. That I know of, anyway. Each of them had been terrified. Each had known she was coming. It was on the tenth night that I finally witnessed my mother's death. She was conscious. Had felt her heart slowing, speeding up, slowing again. She couldn't move. Her thoughts were fuzzy. She muttered my name. There was a brief moment of clarity, and with it came regret. She was so, so sad. And then she was gone. In my journalism classes, I've been told I always need to make my purpose in writing clear. Never leave a reader wondering why, they say. But when it comes to this story... I don't know why. Because it's mine, I guess. Sorry if that's disappointing. I'll leave you with this. Somewhere on this earth, there's a place that holds great meaning for you. Perhaps you would recognize this place if you saw it. Perhaps not. It might be somewhere familiar as your bedroom. It might be a place that has not even been built yet. 
Maybe it's in the shade of a giant elm tree, a hospital bed, a square of sidewalk outside a pizza parlor on the main street of your town. I'm speaking, of course, of the place where you'll die. You don't know when. Nobody does. But death will come for you. And when it does, it'll find you at a specific point in space. Do you see it every day, not yet realizing what sort of place it is? The place where all your childhood memories, personality quirks, and hopes for the future will be extinguished. Like a candle flame robbed of oxygen. Who knows, maybe you're there right now. You may not like it, but there is a place out there just for you. It's one of the only sure things in this world. And that's not all. You might just leave something there when you go. A mark. So delicate, yet so indelible, that someone not yet born might feel a chill down their spine as they pass by years or even decades later. I would know. My home is one of those special places. And there are so many marks here that it makes me want to scream. As the fires wane and embers glow, our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us. Embrace No Sleep. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski. Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.